Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, Aha, Pansexual, Knowing No Boundaries of Sex or Gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Three CR eight five five AM digital three CR dot org dot AU. Thanks for tuning in to Out of the Pan, a show covering pansexual issues, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. And if you want to get in touch with the show, do so in lots of ways. Out of the Pan eight five five at gmail dot com. Text in six one four zero one zero seven eight nine eight one. Look for me or Out of the Pan's page on Facebook or tweet at Sal Gold said so. And that's the bottom line. 3CR broadcasting from the lands of the original inhabitants and paying respects to elders past and present and acknowledging our LGBTI Indigenous elders for their unique contributions to diversity and intersectionality on and around our land. Today is part two of the Are We Over the Rainbow Yet panel recorded um, and took place on 27 July 2015. And, well, a very deliberate choice to open up with Cole Chisel, originally off the Circus Animals album, um, their fourth studio album in the early 80s, and Jimmy Barnes on lead vocals and who wrote You Got Nothing I Want, and as it said in the liner notes for this Chisel compilation, um, and it was about a Barnes reaction to touring America in general, Electra Records, PR man Marty Schwartz in particular. Well, personally, um, what did we want out of this... Um, are we over the rainbow yet panel, which, um, well, seemed to be taken over by the marriage issue. Um, played like part one last week. There was some pretty cis-privileged stuff in there. have to give another warning today for cis-privilege and probably male privilege. Um, but so as we keep saying, we've got to sometimes shine a light under the rock as to what's going on. Um, I'll have a big wrap-up at the end of this part, part two, as to what it is, but for now, for the, about the next three quarters of an hour, let's hear it as it happened. Part two of the Are We Over the Rainbow Yet panel held at Darabin Entertainment Centre on 27 July 2015 with a range of panellists, well, um, from the lesbian and gay community and yours, I think, from the rest, due to the unfortunate um, situation at the time of the illness of Tony Briffer, that damn lurgy that hit Melbourne in the winter of 2015 will be remembered for a while. Let's see if there was a lurgy of sorts, a queer lurgy in the room. Let's have a listen to Are We Over the Rainbow, part two. Alrighty. So, to kick on with our evening. Now, one of the big questions that we're going to tackle a couple of questions now, which are often controversial within the rainbow community. The first one that we're going to get into is around the ways, looking at how our community relates to, relates to religion and the diverse range of relationships that people in the movement have to religion. Um, could I ask Lara Wood to get up and ask her question, please? Yes, um... My question is uh, for Tim Wilson. Public schools in Australia should be welcoming, safe and supportive places for same-sex attracted and gender-questioning youth and for young girls. Government has a responsibility to work towards ensuring this is a reality as part of its duty of care to its students and for the good good of our society. Assuming you agree with this statement, what do you think about curriculum materials containing the following ideas which are being used in Australian public schools as part of special religious instruction? That women should submit (coughs) to their husbands? That sexual intimacy is only acceptable between a married man and a woman, 
that we should not change our bodies and that our bodies are owned by God. Where are we? That homosexual activity is a choice which is not part of God's plan and that women should not talk too much or they will lose their emotional virginity. (laughs) How do you stop women from talking too much? (laughs) Two women together. (laughs) None of us are virgins. (laughs) I think it would be fair to say I find some of those teachings rather odd, um, (laughs) to say the least. Um, But I am asking this very serious question. Is that something you're aware of being taught or has been printed or, or said in a school? Or, cause, and I'm not, this isn't to, disp- to make any accusation, please don't uh, misinterpret it. There are lots of things that I've been told go on in schools and I then go and research and try and find the basis of the information. Often I get told, well, I thought that's what they said or something along those lines. So it's quite serious. These are actually being taught and I can, if you give me your email address after tonight, please. I can send them to you. My email address is quite public. It's tim.wilson at humanrights.gov.au. In fact, um, uh, there there are three particular books that these um, teachings come out of. uh, They were banned by the New South Wales uh, Education Department in May. Yes. One week later, the Sydney Archbishop had a meeting with uh, Adrian Piccoli, the Education Minister, and two of the books were unbanned and let back into the public schools. The third book, which is by far the worst, is still a teaching resource for SRE volunteers. And the woman who wrote the book trains the volunteers in the areas of sex and sexuality. Right. Okay. So we, we have a huge problem here, and I can send you all the documentation. Please send it to me. But... Thank you. Please send it to me, but I think it would also be wise to send it to the new Gender and Sexuality Commissioner in Victoria, Rowena Allen, because uh, education is a state issue, and I'm not trying to do that to avoid it, and so it's much more in her her view, but uh, I will go off and look at some of that material more closely, because um, I'm not hostile to having religious instruction in schools, so long as it's done on the basis of choice and the consent of the parent. But in saying that, I think it has to be done in a way which is mindful of the character and the culture that you're fostering in schools. And I don't think public schools should in any way be encouraging or fostering an environment. Um, Oh, Rowena's right in front of you, I see. Uh, (laughs) uh, Fostering an environment of disrespecting others um, because uh, we often, we rightly get very exercised and energised about issues around equality. Um, but there are two types of equality. There is formal equality, which is about equality before the law and equality of opportunity, and then there's informal equality, which is about equality of outcomes and interpersonal um, equality. And when you have a public school there for a public benefit, um, that is a direct extension of the government. Uh, For it to foster or encourage in any way uh, an inequality between the people it is there to serve, is utterly unjust. Thank you. Um, I'd like to perhaps take the opportunity to draw out these questions around the relationship, um, the relationship, ways that we deal with religious freedom um, and same-sex issues. Um, I went to a Catholic school until I was... 11, then I became a street kid because I, well, I was being, uh, having an Aboriginal mother, I was forced to sit in the back of the classroom, but that wasn't the main reason. The main reason was that um, I didn't always go to Mass on a Sunday morning and I'd be wrapped over the knuckles for it. And uh, so I left school and became a street kid, which was much easier. <laughs> that's, that's a fairly difficult... Um, that's a pretty horrible choice. But I'd like to sort of draw out the panel's views on these questions around how we manage um, tensions around religious freedom. I'm conscious there's been debates between some mental members of the panel around um, qu- 
questions about whether or not celebrants should be marriage celebrants should be allowed to um, choose not to marry same-sex couples if they feel that uh, that that goes against their beliefs. Would anyone? Can I? I'll just say on that question, I don't have a view about whether they should or shouldn't. I'm, I'm torn on that. But seriously, am I going to get married with someone standing in front of me who doesn't like me and doesn't like my lifestyle? No like, way. You know, I, I want to have someone... I want Jason now. I want him going, you and Lisa, you are the spunkiest lesbian couple I have ever seen. And those frocks are so awesome and you are awesome. I don't want someone marrying me. So, I, look, I think it's a... An interesting question about whether business should be allowed to choose, whether or not they all of that stuff in America. I think it's an interesting question, but it, I don't know that it's a live question because who here is seriously going to go to a celebrant? Surely they turn down the person when they apply. That's that's right. Or I'm going to turn them down because yeah. I'm going to take one look at their face and I'm going, yeah, I don't want you. <laughs> I don't want this thing that you've got going on there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's two questions running. I want to respond to Lara's first. If we're having religious instruction in schools, let's get people from Wiccan and Pagan in, let's get the Jewish people in, Hindu and everyone else, and let's get everyone talked about equally as part of diversity. Well, now, let's, let's see how these Christian people say, oh, but we've got a religious right. Oh, but not those Wiccans, they don't. You know, let's see if there's a real consistency of standard. Second... And the other thing is, I think, this is where intersectionality comes in in relation to Lara's question. GLBTI is moving out of isolation, and one area we can work with is um, what I'll call the broader feminist movement. Now, I know there's various streams of it, but feminism that genuinely values all and celebrates all gender identities and gender expressions, and I think that's where we could get some strength on that issue. And the other question on the celebrants, sorry... I don't believe a civil celebrant should have the right to a religious exemption. And then I've got a few reasons for that. One, if we fight for marriage equality, one of the reasons is to get um, an end to a systemic form of legal discrimination. To replace it with another just seems illogical. Second, I think about the people from the Way Out Project at Cobor Shire in Victoria who went through the court system trying to fight a business's right to claim they could discriminate religiously. Third, for the first time, dare I bring in a really bad pun, we're in the dominant position as the GLBTI community. I think it's time we made some of the more extreme anti-GLBTI people a bit submissive and maybe that's not consensual. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jason, would you like to come in? You cannot have a society. There, There will be deep breaths at the end of the program. But fourth, and this is where with respect I disagree with some people, I do not want to give concessions in inverted commas to people who, if you really boiled it down, and this is where I want to make a distinction, not all religion. There are some wonderful supportive religious people. The fact that I think it was Uniting Care, Angley Care and one other supported the lack of religious exemption for aged care service provision in 2013. But the extreme anti-GLBT, and I'll deliberately say GLBT elements, let's be really blunt here. Let's really put this in line. Their aim, if you really put them on a Royal Commission witness stand, are to wipe us out. They want to commit genocide on us. I'm sorry, I don't feel like I want to give concessions to them. Thank you very much, umpire. Tim, did you want to come back in on that? I'm not into sloganeering. Religious freedom is a human right as much as the basic principle of equality before the law. We have a society where our full human rights are not being extended to all citizens. You do not win an argument, engender public sympathy or support, to prosecute a case to advance your rights by suppressing the rights of others. There are tensions that exist between religious freedom and marriage for same-sex couples. They are complicated. They have unintended consequences for same-sex couples as much as they do religious communities. I don't know if anybody's following what's going on in the United States at the moment, but there are a lot of people who have same-sex couples have been in same-sex relationships for very long periods of time. It's been well known. There have been teachers in different religious education institutions, 
and they've been happy and existed there. Now, whether I, the extent to which their happiness is, is something that's up to them, I obviously don't know them. And many of them, because they've now gone off to get married, have directly, as far as their the church is concerned, undermined the institution of marriage as is taught, and they've been legally been able to be fired. Now, we have laws that are very similar to that. I don't think it's a good thing to see huge numbers of people mass-sacking because we rush headlong uh, and strong into thinking that we can change the law without thinking about some of these consequences. I strongly believe in change in the law, but there are ways that it can be done smarter with greater respect for religious freedom than perhaps we have in the past. And on civil celebrants, I have no issue with civil celebrants saying I have a conscientious objection or religious objection um, to marrying a same-sex couple. I don't agree with them. But we have lots of other measures where we protect people's right to their own conscience and not to act against their conscience. The responsibility is for the state, if somebody wishes to exercise that right, to facilitate somebody else doing it so that same-sex couples are not discriminated against and somebody else's religious freedom is preserved. And I would have thought as a country, if we want to move on from this debate, not uh, divided but united... We should be respecting the rights of all, not just res respecting the rights of some. That is what makes us better. Tim, I um, disagree. Um, as a marriage celebrant, as someone who trains celebrants every year, I trained a bunch of them yesterday. And um, Right now, I am not allowed to discriminate against anyone as a civil marriage celebrant. And you're you know, advocating in this that in the future, I would be able to discriminate for the very first time. 28% and decreasing amount of marriages each year being performed by religious institutions. Mm -hmm. And they are allowed to add anything they like to the wedding ceremony and to the requirements already, and they have freedom to discriminate as they wish because you have to fulfil their obligations. Why on earth do we need to take a backward step? And then I can potentially next year say, because you want to marry, not that I would, obviously, but you want to marry a um, same-sex couple... Um, they want to come to me and be married, I can say, no, that's ridiculous. And it's a civil... Civil Marriage Act is a civil institution and we shouldn't discriminate. And I think um, Will's right. The market will weed out the people who Correct. are inappropriate to marry right. Will, for example. But, but in order for it to be weeded out, it needs to be lawful. But there's and no that's threat the to them. There's no threat to the church. We're not going to change those laws. Every marriage means institution different things to different people. people. And it has an enduring cultural as well as religious, as well as civil power. This is part of the, the, you know, somebody who's long been an advocate for getting government out of marriage as an alternative, and, um, you know, the reason it will never be successful as a proposition, even though I support it, is because gay people don't want to turn around to their partners of many years and say, will you civil union me, any more than straight people do. And the fact that there's a civil institution that has that cultural power means it means multiple different things to different groups of people. Do I think people should discriminate? Absolutely not. Do I think people who have uh, a conscientious objection, though, should be compelled by law to do something against their will? No. And I don't understand precisely the point... You know, we, we might have many disagreements on other issues, but why on earth wouldn't I want them to be able to say, I don't want to do this and just let them get on with their lives and I'll get on with my lives and hopefully one day they'll realise that it's a benefit for them to change their view. That's correct, but there's no need to legislate for that. It, the, it's actually in place now and with the changes um, you know, they want in the Marriage Act, um, that can still happen and the market sure. will take care of itself. We don't need to actually enshrine discrimination for the first time. Yeah. Uh, Indeed. Okay, we might move... Uh, oh, sorry, can I... Oh, sorry. I'm, I was just going to say, um, uh, I, I disagree with Tim as well. I, I think that Tim's jumping at shadows here. Again, if we look at the international experience, um, there are only a handful of cases ever cited by groups like the Australian Christian Lobby of people being persecuted because of their religious faith, because they didn't want to bake a cake or arrange flowers for a same-sex wedding. Um, and most of those cases are from jurisdictions that don't even have marriage equality or didn't have it when the case arose. It's because of anti-discrimination laws. It's not because of marriage equality that people are running around saying that their religious uh, values are being, are being um, violated. <coughs> um, 
If there was a problem, we'd already be seeing it in Australia now with florists and bakers and, and celebrants or whatever refusing to preside over same-sex civil union ceremonies um, or not wanting to bake cakes for various other celebrations. We don't, we don't see that happening and it's not going to happen as a result of marriage equality in the same way it hasn't happened in Britain or New Zealand or Uruguay or Argentina or any of those other countries. It's happened a few times, it would seem, in the United States, which is a highly litigious society and which, where this issue of marriage equality is a hot-button issue in the culture war. Uh, and there have been some cases. I don't think we should be punching holes in Australian anti-discrimination law because of a culture war battle in uh, Indiana. Um, and where's it going to end? Do we open a Pandora's box? I mean... That's Tim, exactly Tim, the Tim. same, with respect, Rodney, and, you know, Rodney and I get along extremely well and we agree on 95% of this issue. <laughs> really. Quite, uh, yeah, I just do. want to yeah. highlight, and, uh, but with respect, the reason the issue hasn't come up in Australia is because we don't have marriage for same-sex couples. There is a big difference between a relationship um, and a civil union or a civil structure relationship and a marriage, and that is, whether I agree with it or not, the crux of the difference of opinion that exists between some religious people who feel it's a violation of their religious liberty or not. But the idea that we're going to open a Pandora's box is exactly the same argument they're using against why there shouldn't be a change in the law. But it's already Rather happened. than looking at the pragmatic reality and the fact is this, people say, rightly, 72% of Australians support a change in the law. 100% right. There's another 28% of people and their rights matter too. What if a couple want to get married in a church? What if a same-sex couple want to get married in a church? Well, there's an exemption in the current Marriage Act that means that uh, religious celebrants can turn away whoever they wish. They, don't have, they can marry whoever they wish. They don't have to marry same-sex couples, and that will continue. Uh, and that's fine. I think we all accept that. But um, when I say a Pandora's box, what I'm saying is that other commentators have taken Tim's suggestion of respecting the religious freedoms of bakers and florists and civil celebrants to a, a far, to a far greater extreme and saying, well, we should be able to discriminate against same-sex married couples in accommodation. Or, you know, if, if, if a landlord doesn't like the fact that, uh, that these, are, these two men are married, then he or she should be able to turn them away. Those people I are mean, called idiots. I've been turned away by a taxi <laughs> driver because my friend, we were standing outside the Australia Council, was a full... Full blood, Aboriginal, and the taxi wouldn't stop. I guess. So talk to me about discrimination. So <laughs> we might we might move we might move on as time is tight. Can I ask for questions from from Adrian Twaz Yeah. Okay, Mike. My question is, is gay rights a left-wing issue? And can I add to that, can I ask um, Corey Erlen to please ask his question? I apologise for not being shorter when I didn't realise I had to not pair it later. In the US and the UK, there are visible presence of LGBTI members of conservative political parties in a form of some organised structure. Geo Proud, Log Cabin Republicans, LGBT Tory. Here in Oz, there's the Queer Greens and there's Rainbow Labor, but there's no visible home for conservative voices within the national, Liberal National Party structures. My question's twofold. One, do the panel think that LGBTI movements in Australia need a formal Rainbow Liberal organisation rather than just two prominent individuals associated with centre-right politics? Or two, and two, does the panel think that this lack of visible centre-right LGBTI organisation perpetuates the stereotype that LGBTI issues are a centre-left issue and decrease our chance for bipartisanship and success as no community organisation is seen as speaking for 50% of the population? I forgot that. Uh, well, on the first question, are gay rights a left-wing issue? I would say absolutely not. Um, I think it's gay rights is an issue for all of the community, whether you're here, here. on the left or on the right or in the centre uh, or a green, uh, because they're somewhere 
else. Um, <laughs> um, uh, look, I say that as a Liberal Party politician. Um, but, uh, you know, I think absolutely not. And, and on the second question from Corey, uh, there certainly has been informal discussion within the Liberal Party about forming a group, a type of group like the Log Cabin, um, uh, because there's been thought amongst the very many gay and lesbian members of the Liberal Party, uh, certainly in New South Wales where, where I'm based, that we don't have the kind of voice that we, that we think that there should be, uh, that there is no formal recognition of the fact that the very large uh, section of the party are, are LGBTI people. Um, so there has been informal discussion. I, I certainly, given the way that, that, that some of the debate in the federal Liberal Party is going on the issue of marriage equality at the moment, I think we would struggle to get a formal recognition at party level of, of, a, of a group, uh, of, of you know, a rainbow-style group. But I think it is probably getting to the point, given that the way that discussion and debate is going, and that, that we do actually need to start looking at an informal grouping that uh, you know waves a banner and says we are gay and lesbian, uh, transgender, intersex, queer, liberals and nationals and we're proud of it and we want to have a voice and we want our party to listen to our voice and to listen to the people, the majority of the people of Australia and reflect their views a bit better. I think that if, what I would say is, is gay rights a left-wing issue? Yes, because questions of rights are traditionally progressed by progressives. Is gay, are gay freedoms <laughs> a progressive? Uh, are they a left-wing issue? No, because the issues of LGBTI community framed in a slightly different way, which is about freedoms, is a different set of language. So I think the issues affecting LGBTI people are, affect, are not left-right. They are, as you can see here, they affect all, and all are passionate. There are passionate advocates for those rights inside the left and the right, but how it's framed, like the marriage equality issue, might be different. For me, it's an issue of equality and rights. For Tim, I would say it's probably more an issue of freedom and government not playing a role necessarily in defining what two consenting adults would choose to do. I'm speaking for him. <laughs> we most definitely are. For himself, uh, I think, probably, based on tonight's experience, yes. Um, it hasn't just been tonight. Okay, yeah, yeah no, fair enough. Um, so I think that issues of the LGBTI community, there are passionate advocates across the spectrum. How those issues are framed or what you do might be framed differently depending on whether you are on the left or on the right. Lars, yep. would you like to jump in there? Yes. Um, uh, you missed your moment. Oh, don't worry, I'll get it. The answer is no, of course. <laughs> gay rights is not just a left-wing is issue. If, but if I look at Sweden then, it, it was, I would say, from the beginning... 50, 60 years ago, not the beginning, but it was a, a, a left-wing question, and uh, it's not today. But the only reason that Sweden has come so far that we have done uh, is that you have had women organizations driving questions around the whole topic, from uh, um, gender equality to, uh, to um, uh, gay rights, etc., and these organizations have threatened the politicians that if you don't do anything about this or about uh, uh, same-sex marriages, etc., etc., we will start our own party. And every time they have threatening with this, politicians from left to right have started to put new laws or policies in place. This is the same story every time this happens. And we, we have a feminist party in Sweden today. They are not in the parliament, but they are driving all these questions forward. And there are also men in this party, so it's not, uh, it was uh, mostly women from the beginning, but today it's men and women. And so today, the only reason that we have uh, come so far in Sweden today is that it is uh, all over the, the political scale. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have been where we are today. In, you, you know, originally, the, um, 
Black Freedom Marches in America, when we set up the Gay Liberation Front, um, Women's Liberation followed, they were all seen as left. Now, I'm, I believe in freedom of speech, freedom for everyone. I helped set up those free movements. Now we're starting to run out of time, so um, I'm afraid I know Tim wants to jump back in, but he's already had one go on this one. So Jason, do you I actually want... have it, but that's. But okay. speak. Have a minute, and I'll have a minute. Sure. Yep. Um, I could talk about this all night, but if you actually want to affect change in 21st century Australia, you don't need the left or the right. You need at least a vast bulk of both sides of the political spectrum, and saying both sides diminishes it somewhat. I could go into a long history about how the left actually never gave two hoots about rights up until about the middle of the 20th century um, because rights are actually invented by centre-right political philosophers because they're about protecting the rights of the individual against the state and that was always opposed by the left, but that's by the by. Um, <laughs> uh, but the key point that Corey asked about was the importance of language and you're 100% right. There is a desperate need to engage contemporary political debates around the language and the organising principles of different parts of the political spectrum. Today, a lot of the organisers of the centre-left, one of a better phrase, will talk about equality as an organising uh, principle. It's the thing that prompts them to action. If you ask the centre-right, it's around responsibility and words like that. And when we move into periods where you need to win the centre-right in political debates, you need to focus on those sorts of themes as part of the discussion just as much as equality if you want to take the debate forward. What well, I just want to add, Tim, is 40% um, of the Australian Equality Party's membership and increasing are from the right. And they have found a visible home for themselves, Corey. And it's time that LGBTI issues, to start with, are not pushed to the side by the major parties as it suits them, but that we have an independent voice that speaks from a centrist perspective, about equality and agitates for that change. Because unfortunately, even when you look at marriage, um, it's not going to change if we, don't, if we stop agitating for it. And so there's a lot of work to do. And I think there is a home for people from the left and from the right now in what our party has done. Alrighty. Now, to move on to issues around fighting discrimination and driving empowerment... Can we have questions from Michelle Redfern, Jack Tomlins and Mary Kay, please? Hi there, Michelle Redfern. As a businesswoman who's recently turned 50 and who is in a same-sex relationship, I'm more than curious to see what the panel thinks that uh, real and practical action can be taken to harness the collective power of all of the demographic groups I belong to, so we can invoke immediate and enduring change that results in economic and social empowerment. This is kind of a well bit for everybody, really. Um, I recently saw the English movie Pride, uh, which you should all see if you haven't, because it's uh, fabulous, which tells the story of a small group of lesbian and gay activists in London who decide to raise money for a Welsh mining community during the 1985 miners' strike. At first, the miners find it difficult to accept the gays, but by the end of the movie are proudly marching with them, and the small band of London activists have become our gays. With this in mind, I was wondering how, 30 years on, the union movement can best support the gays. There's another question. Oh, one more, sorry. Uh, we run the only Commonwealth-funded um, LGBTIQ employment service nationwide called Working Out. Um, how can we inspire more organisations to drive systemic change from within to support our community and encourage their staff to become visible allies? Alrighty, thank you. Will, shall we start with you on this? Okay, I'm going to take the union question. <laughs> <laughs> really? I think... Um, so what can unions do? Well, it, it depends on what the issue is. In terms of individual union members who um, are LGBTIQ and are facing discrimination, then unions should represent their members um, in whatever forum is required to do that. But I think your question is more about the broader social 
um, change that unions can bring. Uh, my view about that is that uh, ultimately unions are made up of people who pay their dues to get something from that organisation and it's predominantly an industrial service. So it is not the union's business broadly to progress all of the different social issues. What we can best do is work with organisations that exist to progress issues in the ways that those organisations would like us to and to offer support to their campaigns. I don't want as a union movement for us to go, well, there's this LGBTIQ thing now and we're going to fix that because there are already a myriad of organisations out fixing that. But what we can do as large membership organisations is give those groups the opportunity to come and talk to union members and to support them in the ways that those groups would like to engage with us. So when those groups come to us, I would say at the Victorian Trades Hall Council, the Victorian Trades Hall Council has a resolution on foot and has done it, I think, twice now, where they fully support the marriage equality campaign and call for that reform and say that it's long overdue. So there's the symbolic things we can do and then there's the work that we can do with groups. Lars, would you like to come in? Yes, I think that uh, unions can do a lot together with uh, companies, of course. But uh, I have to tell you first, uh, learn you a little uh, Swedish. Uh, today in Sweden we are talking about him, which is han in Swedish, H-A-N. Her, which is, which is she, H-E-R, and hen. So it's him, her, and hen. We have three different categories. Sorry about my English here. Uh, in 2010, there was a children's book released in Sweden called Kiwi and the Dog. And the writer used the word hen all the time instead of saying if the kiwi or the dog was a him or a her. He or a her. Um, this has been a debate for a number of years in Sweden that do you have to sign if you're a man or a woman if you fill in a form, etc., etc. And... Uh, uh, some people don't want to fill that in. They can't or they don't want to, to use him or her. Anyway, uh, this has moved on, and i make this story a little shorter now. Um, so uh, we talked more and more, and the debate was very high about using this word hen. And uh, just about half a year ago, the Swedish Academy, who gave out the Nobel Prize in Literature, they have a word list that come out every year, and they said... Hen is here. We are going to use the word hen for people who doesn't want to use him or her. And one of the biggest unions in Sweden called Bygnats, they're working with, uh, you know, building societies, uh, um, what? Building societies, carpenters, painters, bricklayers, whatever. They are doing all their instructions and leaflets, whatever, they are using the word hen. So they don't have to say if it's a woman or a man, whatever it is. And, and a couple of uh, tabloids has, has done the same. So we are using this word now more and more and more and more. Two, three years ago, people thought it was ridiculous. Today, even the Minister of uh, Equality in Sweden has used it in uh, the parliament. So people are getting more and more used to this. And things like that, uh, I think unions and companies can work together with. Uh, and... Uh, Connected to the other things that I talked about tonight, uh, about uh, uh, marriages, etc., etc., all these things together, I think it's very important, for, in Sweden it is anyway, to, uh, to put this in place and that people are using it. So there's a lot of things to do, I think. A couple of quick answers on the first question about uh, from the from the businesswoman who's just turned 50. Um, I'm a politician. I've just turned 51, uh, and I'm I receive endless re Facebook requests um, from women around my age who are setting up groups to to become activists and and engage with their own contemporaries uh, on social media. So I, I really think, you know, in a practical sense, tap into social media. I think a lot of women our age are, are doing that now. 
uh, and enjoying it and networking and, um, and, and getting a great deal out of that. And on the question about uh, from the, the LGBTIQ employment service, uh, I would encourage you to get in touch with Pride and Diversity. Um, they're attached to ACON in Sydney and they do fantastic work in um, uh, encouraging diversity within workplaces. So I, I think it'd be a good idea for you to have a chat with them. Well, I made my debut, uh, professional debut, at Her Majesty's Theatre in 1954. And uh, the first day of rehearsals, the um, equity deputy said to me, no, we're on strike. I thought, my God, I'm going to lose my job. I said, why are we striking? He said, and he explained, and this is the point I'm trying to make, that union people are very good at explaining. And uh, he explained everything to me about women not being paid as much as the men were being paid, and that's why they were striking. And I, I am, I've always been uh, a political activist, but I'm particularly keen to see unions survive in this country. Okay. Okay, folks. Now, we had a whole list of other questions on raising Sally, issues. To, Pardon? I just want to touch quickly Sally. on the employment service one um, and, you know, inspiring organisations to drive change. Talk about how awesome trans people are, declaring all possible bias. You know, <laughs> um, you know Lynn Conway, who invented um, multiprocess... had made a major breakthrough in multiprocessing in computers. La Lana um, Wachowski, one of the co-directors, producers of The Matrix and Cloud Atmos movies, say that if you just give a, say, a trans and gender-diverse person just a bit of a hand up, give them a bit of a start, you could have that sort of genius in your organisation. Um, and... You know, as I say, all possible bias, but I think our ability to move beyond the assumptions that society puts us in, and this goes for all of LGBTI and polyamorous and everyone else, we've got a unique thing to offer any employer, whether it's public sector, business or private. And in relation to the 50-year-old businesswoman, anything that involves sharing skills on running businesses, particularly in other unique challenges for GLBTI, there might be and there might not be, anything that could help there, I think that would be really cool as well. Alrighty, um, I'd love to thank all of our panel members for what's been a fabulous discussion. We've got a long list of questions we still haven't managed to get through and yet we promised we'd let you get out of here by 10 o'clock. Uh, pardon? Anna Brown's question. <laughs> Go on, Anna. <laughs> Jump. Jump in, Anna. Look. <laughs> Is everyone... How's everybody's parking? <laughs> um, thanks, Noel. Um, mine's a bit of an uh, sort of movement-building, navel-gazing one. Um, as we see... As we achieve significant progress on LGBTI rights in Australia, we're starting to see more divergence in our movement and also the need to work more deeply on specific challenges facing each population group in LGBTIQ. Given this, is the grouping of our populations and communities under this umbrella um, still the most effective strategy for us as a movement? And secondly, is it time that we had a national human rights organisation for LGBTI people? Or does this raise questions about whether such an organisation is possible or appropriate given, given, again, the differing and competing needs of each of L, G, B, T and I? Jason, that sounds like a perfect question for you. I actually think that um, we do need a national human rights organisation and uh, I certainly want to play a part in that at some point in, down the track. Um, I think by being collective and together across the divide, whether you're from the left or the right or from whichever LGBTI organisation you're a part of, that together we actually can get the changes that we need to occur. And there are many. And I don't think that we need to double up with others who are doing the same things and we need to actually listen to each other and understand what each other is doing and... Um, not attack each other if we think they're doing it differently because there is a lot of um, attack in our community as well and then we can actually maybe collaborate really well together and as a 
you know, if there are, what, one and a half million potentially LGBTI people in this country, um, that's a pretty big force, and if they all join together, then we actually could actually have a, a world that's a much better place for us here in Australia. Can I, can I add something there? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, as someone who's been involved in three attempts now, I think, to form a national LGBTI human rights organisation, um, I can say, one, that it's something I'm very passionate about, and two, it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm passionate about it, obviously, because we need consistent representation at a federal level, uh, because there's a lot of really positive law reform that can happen there. Uh, two, I think if we had a national organisation and then the, as, I said, as Anna said, differing and competing needs of LGBTI people would be easier to balance up, to make sure that resources are properly allocated. It wouldn't just be a free-for-all like it is now, that it would be actually something that policy could be set about in a, in a rational way with involvement from the community, um, which would be great. But I've found in the past that it's not any competition between LGBTI people that's the problem, it's a competition between Sydney and Melbourne. <laughs> um, sorry, it's a fact. And uh, uh, the, the, the fundamental point, I guess, about establishing a national organisation is it can't be an organisation that represents the states because then that kind of interstate rivalry comes up. Uh, we've been so good at working at a state level over the years. The Victorian Gay, Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby, represented by Anna and Corey, and the, Victorian, the New South Wales Lobby was then there, and and uh, other people in other states. Uh, we've done such a great job, but we haven't yet translated that to a federal level. And when we do do that, we need to start from scratch. We can't make it a federation of groups. It has to be something that begins... Maybe it could evolve out of Australian marriage equality or maybe it could evolve out of something the Equality Party does or whatever, but it needs to be something that has its own independent existence. Um, and I hope desperately that we're able to do that because we're the only Western nation that doesn't have that national organisation and it is a missing piece in our community's jigsaw. Addressing the end of Anna's question is I really think, although I think it's time we separated a little, I don't think we can achieve anything if we do. We also need a national trans voice. Yeah. That's the other thing. Um, it's one of the great... And Sally will be able to go more, and she may not even agree with me, but considering the enormity of the challenges that need to be done at a state and a federal level around transgender issues and making sure that there's proper representation, the absence of a trans, national trans group does make it challenging um, and to make sure that there is a not a single point of contact but certainly a, a core focus of voice. But Sally may have something more to say about that. Yeah, look, a few things very, as quickly as I can. I, I, I think it's a great question, Anna, and I also think I very much acknowledge this need to be mindful of differences between LGBT and I, but let's also remember Organisation Intersex International, and sad that Tony again isn't here tonight, do have a national intersex body. Where would they fit into this? The second point that went through my head... Um, I think if, it, if it's done carefully with some good facilitation, it, it could, we could get it underway. But I think we've got to start right from the grassroots up about values and, and goals. And we have a bit of experience on that because last year 10 trans and gender diverse groups in Victoria managed to get together and are now working on joint events. And if you can get 10 trans and gender diverse groups together, which is like herding cats, then anything's possible. <laughs> Well, I'm going to get some nasty tweets for that one, but it's true. <laughs> um, third, intercity rivalry. I think we start, you know, I think that things have shifted in the last few years. I, I'm aware of Rodney's experiences with Equal Rights Network and what was the Council of Lesbian and Gay Rights. I think things have matured somewhat in the last few years, and we are now having more empathy for one another. So I think we could do it, uh, but I just think we've got to have the right process. And I think we do need to remember that a lot of what we face comes from, what is it, heterosexism, that sort of thing, and we still have that in common to work together. Um, in terms of a national trans voice, it needs, well, I could say, has anyone got Banky Moon or um, Kofi Annan's phone number? But one of the issues we've got is the reality is there's a discrepancy in where things are at, both within the trans and gender diverse world and in terms of positivity from the wider community across states and territories. And I feel there's some jealousy from the 
um, states that are less and regions that are less progressed to those that are, and I don't know how you overcome that. Um, so I think it's achievable. I think it needs to happen. Um, just needs to have the right underlying process of goals and values to start with, and I think we'd be able to give it a crack. Oh, there's intercity rivalry. I often think that Melbourne is a very community city, whereas Sydney's a corporate city. Now, let's, not, let's come from a place of understanding rather than judgment on that. They're both good things. How do we make them work together? Let's take, I'm being a bit humorous, let's take Sydney's corporate dollars and pump them into the community. Not in <laughs> Melbourne, but everywhere. It sounds let's like Canberra is the solution. Let's, <laughs> the serious answer is let's just work on our strengths and I think we can glue it together. Um, I, think, I think we've certainly demonstrated that tonight with an enormously diverse range of speakers demonstrating just how much in common um, there is and how much, of a sh how much of a shared voice and a shared view there is across this movement and particularly that preparedness to listen. And I know that Jason has done an enormous amount of work in his last 18 months or so of running around and seeking to speak to the full breadth and diversity um, of, part, of all of the different parts of our rainbow community. Um, so with that, could I ask the audience to thank our panel members, please? Bisexual Alliance is a non-profit organisation dedicated to raising awareness and supporting people who are bisexual, people who are multi-gender attracted, their partners and their families. Bisexual Alliance runs several monthly discussion groups in and outside of Melbourne to offer support, a safe space to chat about your experiences and to explore others' experience of multi-gender attraction. These groups are for bisexuals, those who are questioning and their loved ones. For more information, visit bi-alliance.org or email info at by-alliance.org Getting us back beyond um, gay and lesbian. There it was, the part two, the conclusion of um, Are We Over the Rainbow Yet? Well, um, look, listening back, I've got to say that wasn't as bad as I felt it at the time, but I have to be honest, I have to say that in terms of my community slash work involvement, that was the lowest point of my year. I felt there was a lot of cis privilege. We heard last week um, one of the um, cisgender participants say, we will do marriage first and then we will do other things later. My emphasis on those four words, who's speaking for whom, um, lumping everything else in as other things. Um, Tim Wilson's, um, regardless of who it was, saying, when I want one voice to listen to, it's not about what a cisgender person wants, it's what the trans community wants. Um, you know, and the fact that so much of that time was taken on marriage and related issues when nothing was really talked about in relation to trans and by mental health, which is why I deliberately chose to play by Alliance's message just then. It does bring up lots of issues for our community, and I agree with the stuff at the end. How do we work together equally and equitably? And there's a classic poster of the young um, three people trying to stand on boxes, which demonstrates the difference between equality and equity. I think we need to keep that in mind. All right, leave it there. Um, thanks for tuning in to Out of the Pan. To wind us down a bit, I'll take us out today with a beautiful track from um, the early 2000s, um, a duet. This is the acoustic version of Mark Knopfler and James Taylor sailing to Philadelphia, the story of the Mason-Dixon line. Thanks for tuning in to Out You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.